0: Well, welcome to our living room. Um, As you may have heard, last weekend, I was exposed to the COVID virus. On Tuesday, I started to show symptoms. On Wednesday, tested positive. So uh, Sherry and I have been quarantining since actually Tuesday uh, afternoon. And uh, I'm fine, I mean, it's, it's, it really, uh, it was, to me, it was a cold with a couple x-rays and pains, so doing well. But in an abundance of caution, we decided that uh, I would not preach live anywhere this weekend. But it is the kickoff for the series, and I wanted to be part of it, and so, um, well, welcome to our living room. So it turns out we have a complicated relationship with feedback. Um, You see it with students, they don't like test scores, and they don't like report cards. But adults really, we're not all that different. I mean, certainly, most people would say the worst part of any job is a performance review, giving it or getting it. Uh, And yet, we do crave feedback. I remember um, a year out of graduate school, I was in my first ministry assignment, and I suddenly found myself wondering, how am I doing? And who's gonna tell me how I'm doing? Like, like, how do I do this better? And, and I need somebody to sort of be able to look at me and to give me some objective feedback. And, and we like feedback. I mean, there's a sense in which we've gotta keep score. Who would watch sports if uh, there was no score? Right? It was just the plays, right? No, we, we need feedback. We need that sense of objective assessment. And in fact, in those areas where we really want to get better and our ego isn't all wrapped up in it, we pay somebody to tell us what we're doing wrong. We call it guitar lessons or you know, golf lessons or we, we study a foreign language and someone says, no, don't say it this way, say it this way. Because in order to get better, you have to have some sort of feedback. Especially if that feedback comes from somebody you trust and somebody you know loves you. So, we come to the seven letters that make up uh, the first part of the book of Revelation. And that is the basis for our series this fall. So 2,000 years ago, not quite, 2,000 years ago, um, the Apostle John, who is now serving as um, as the Bishop of Ephesus in the area around Ephesus. He is uh, the last man standing. He had been the youngest apostle, that's generally tradition tells us that, probably in his late teens when Jesus selected him. All the others were older, all the others have died, uh, with the exception of Judas, who ended his own life. The, The other 10 apostles were all martyred for their faith. John, tradition says, twice they tried to kill him, but he lived. But he's now been banished to this island, this Alcatraz-like island, uh, Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And uh, while he is there, he has a vision, and he is swept up to heaven, and he sees the risen Christ in all his glory. And and that is Revelation chapter one. And and you need to read it. Uh, I've asked you to read it a couple times, but read Revelation chapter one. It gives us a description of Jesus. And then uh, Revelation chapters two and three is is a circular letter written to the seven churches in this area of Asia Minor that John is in charge of. Uh, these are not, by the way, the um, the there's ten churches in the area, best best we can tell by archaeology. So they're not the seven biggest churches at the time, but they were seven churches that served as templates for all the churches today, and and we get feedback from Jesus. So it's full of insights about what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong, and it's, it's a performance review. It's a bit of a report card to help them do better. So today we're looking at the first of the seven, and that is the church that existed in the city of Ephesus, which was... Um, A major city, and it's the most uh, spectacular uh, archaeological find really perhaps in one sense in the 20th century. When you go there, if you take a a tour of the seven churches, you always go to Ephesus last because the archaeology there is so amazing. So you have this uh, iconic two-story library picture. Uh, and you also have uh, the the theater that is massive where Paul spoke. There's just all kinds of, of uh, all kinds of archaeological um, things to look at in Ephesus, and uh, that's because the city was the city. Uh, it was it was the major. City. It wasn't the capital of Asia Minor. That's Pergamum. We'll look at that church, the church in Pergamum, in a couple of weeks but Ephesus was the largest, had perhaps as many as 500,000 people. Had the best harbor, uh, which meant it had the trade and it had the money. Uh, It was a free city, so you wanted to live there because there were no Roman guards knocking around, uh, oppressing you. It was a sports town. The Ephesus games sort of uh, rivaled a little bit of the Olympics. It was an arts town, so you saw the big theater that was there. And it had uh, a huge temple. One of the seven wonders of the world was the temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana. It was 400 feet long. It was about 300 feet wide. It was made out of marble and overladen with gold. And it was it was the, sort of the center of Ephesus. Uh, it was uh, it's hard for us to understand what this would have been like. Uh, so temples were in one sense they were banks, they were places of commerce so there was lots of money there they were uh, they were sanctuaries because they were religious, so if you could get there if you were a criminal and you could get there, you couldn't be arrested and taken away uh, because these were because Diana was a fertility god they, there were lots of temple prostitutes there. it was a pretty uh amazing overwhelming uh, pretty um pretty dark place and uh In the middle of the town of Ephesus is a church. So, Paul, we read about this in Acts 19, Paul, on his third missionary journey, had planted the church in Ephesus. And uh, John, the apostle, who, again, the bishop of, of Ephesus, John had had been there for a while. He had been located there for a while. And uh, so now we we have the letter that Jesus, dictating to John, uh, writes to the church in Ephesus. And all of these letters, by the way, there's seven. They all follow a similar format, uh, who they're written to. Uh, something about Jesus, some description of Jesus that always ties back to Revelation chapter 1. got to read Revelation 1 a few times to appreciate what's going on there. Then there's commendation. If they're doing something right, he talks about that. If they're doing something wrong, he talks about that. Uh, then there is a, a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And so uh, that that leads to Uh, just a warning that they need to heed the advice that they have been given. They need to pay attention to the performance review that Jesus is offering. And then there's a promise. They all end with a promise that if they will follow what uh, Jesus is saying, there will be a reward. So now I am reading Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, so, um need to understand uh, that the angel, we're not certain, uh, I mean, angels are obviously angels. The, the, the Bible is clear, there is a supernatural realm, there are spiritual beings that exist, and uh, there are angels. Now, we don't have any other suggestion that every church has its own angel. <laughs> So we don't know whether or not that's what's being referenced here or because the word angel means messenger, it's just a statement to the messenger, to the person that's going to deliver this to Ephesus. But to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, this is what it sounds... Revelation chapters 4 through 22 get a lot more complicated to understand. Uh, this is actually somewhat easy to understand. Uh, because it's uh, just, it, 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 there's not that much that we've got to decipher. So we know from Revelation chapter 1 that, uh, that these, uh, these stars are the churches. And so the one who holds the churches in his hand is Jesus. So J- Jesus is the one who is writing this. John is just the scribe. So the words of Jesus uh, who walks, uh, who holds the churches in his right hand. He says, verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are my en- I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So, he commends them for three things right out of the gate. First of all, you're working hard. I I know you are diligent right so I know you're not auditing the Christian faith I know you are you are planting churches I know that you are uh, by the way I should pause right here and say hey uh, the reason we think that the church in Ephesus is is the first one that gets highlighted is not just because it's the biggest and most prominent of the churches but because it planted the other six so just a Pausing here to give a shout out to Christchurch Vernon Hills, which is finally up and running. So we were going to launch the Vernon Hills campus as part of the REACH campaign. We're going to launch that back uh, at Easter, but COVID hit and all of that. And so there's been a group, a growing group of people, uh, up about 70 names of people who want to be part of this as it's launching. And so uh, finally... Uh, today is the day that we are launching the Vernon Hills campus. I'm not certain launching a new campus in the middle of a global pandemic is the smartest thing we've ever done. Certainly not the easiest thing that we've ever done. But, uh, but the church in Ephesus was planting churches. We are planting churches Jesus commends the church in Ephesus. They're working hard. They're sharing their faith. They're helping people. They're doing the right thing, and he commends them for that. Secondly, he says, I know that you are doctrinally pure. Uh, Verse 2, he says, "I, I know that you are not bearing with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. So there's a sense in which they care about truth and they care about the gospel and they're protecting the gospel. And then the third thing that he says is that you, you haven't quit. You're bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary. We're told in Galatians 6, right, to not grow weary of doing good. And so he commends them. Well, you're working hard. You're doctrinally pure. And and you are persevering in the midst of all of this. So, hey, I mean, that. <laughs> That sounds good, right? I mean, I'm I'm thinking if I'm getting a report card from Jesus and he says, I like the fact that you're working hard. I like the fact that you're thinking right. I like the fact that you're persevering. Sounds good, except we get to verse four. However, I have this against you. Now, we have to make peace with the fact that uh, there will always be people that don't like what we do, especially if we're trying to lead something. Uh, we're gonna get, there's gonna be criticism, right? That just, that just sort of comes with, with life and we see a lot of that uh, in, in culture today. There's a lot of criticism and we have to sort of steel ourselves against some of that. The question is always, who is offering the criticism? And in this case, it's Jesus. And so this is a full stop. I have this against you, Jesus says. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. So the criticism that comes to the Ephesians, you're working hard, you're doctrinally pure, you're persevering, but your love for God has faded. You are not, you are not uh, compelled by a soft heart after Jesus. And loving God has got to be at the core of what it means to follow God. So we see over and over throughout the Bible. I mean, when Jesus is asked to summarize the the Old Testament and all the law, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus is teaching in Matthew 10, there's a passage in which he says, if your love for your mother and father Right, is greater than your love for me, you're doing this wrong. Uh, in John 8, there's an interchange that he has with the Pharisees. And he says, uh, if God were your father, you would love me. That, that's sort of what the Christian life looks like. We understand God loves us in response to God's love for us. We love God and we obey. God loves, that comes first. The grace, God, God leads, God loves us. Because God loves us, we love God and we obey. But that's not going on with the Christians in Ephesus. And so they are getting scolded for this. And um, look, we need to understand this and we need to take this criticism personally. So let me ask you, how is your love for God? Like, was there a time when your passion for God burned hotter? Was there a time when when you were more uh, amazed at His grace? Now, normally when I am defining love or calling us to love, I'm pretty quick to point out that love is not a feeling, right? It's a commitment of the will. And... um, and you know love is certainly not simply being overwhelmed in during singing and raising our hands and maybe crying in the middle of a worship song okay i'm normally making the point that love looks like obedience and i usually will reference weddings and when i'm when i'm calling a couple you know when they're pledging their vows i go look this isn't about feelings from now on you're your, your feelings need to be dependent upon your actions. Your actions are not dependent upon your feelings. So I, I get all that. I want to make all that point. But I also want to recognize here that uh, <laughs> their, their actions are good. Right? So the criticism here does seem to be about their heart. Their heart has grown cold. They are obeying, but they are not amazed and ravished by the by the beauty of God. How are you doing on this front? Now let me just note it the call to, to love God is I mean it's 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 uh, it's hard. Like there's a sense in which it's again, it's basic, there's a sense in which it's a little scandalous the way it gets presented. There's another sense in which it's hard. It's, it's basically, I mean, the first commandment is, in one sense, the hardest of the Ten Commandments to keep. Right, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? God has to be first. Our, he has to be our compelling vision. He has to be the one that we worship. Our life has to orient around God. There's a sense in which the other commandments, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't murder, Uh, honor your parents there's a sense in which we can will ourselves forward with those but it's very hard to will our heart to do anything and so there's a sense in which uh, being told that we need to love God is sort of uh, a non-starter like what but if I don't what do I do like, I'm doing all the right things. You can, you can hear the people in Ephesus saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard. I'm, my doctrine is sound. Uh, I'm not growing weary of doing this. I keep doing the right things. What else can you expect of me? Well, um, he doesn't stop, fortunately. He ge- goes on and he, Jesus gives us some advice. Verse 5. Uh, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That's verse 4. Then he gives us counsel in terms of what they, what we should do. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So uh, if your heart has grown cold to God, the solution is not to try harder. The solution is to see more clearly. It's to remember who God is. It's to rehearse who he is. It's to, it's to go back and to be amazed at Jesus in the Gospels. And I think we got to keep working this. We got to keep refreshing this. I was, my devotions this morning, uh, so, and I, I have, in my devotions this morning, I was told in one of the things that I read, that you need to change your devotional patterns every seven to 11 years because you've got to rework your inner life every seven to 11 years. So my devotional practice changed pretty dramatically two years ago. So every morning, not every morning, but I try every morning to read a Psalm, reflect on that. Uh, I am now copying 10 verses a day out of the Gospel of John, writing it out longhand. Uh, I then sit and and just try and sit in silence for a while. I then journal a little bit, uh, pray, uh, and then I will often maybe read another chapter out of the Old Testament. And then I'm reading some devotions, various devotional books or online devotional things. And one of the things that I read today was just saying that um, we have to be very intentional about our inner life. And, and we have to understand that every, you know, 7, 10 years, our inner life needs to be rebuilt. And and as I was reflecting on that, I thought, it, it's that's been true for me. And we rebuild it in part by having a deeper understanding of Jesus. And that probably means just going back and rehearsing the Gospels and looking at the stories and looking at how wise he is and looking at how amazing his, his sacrifice is for our part. We've got to remember those things. Second thing that we're told is we need to repent, which again is, uh, means to sort of go the other direction. Really, ultimately, repentance, biblical repentance is all about uh, changing our mind. And then uh, we're told we need to do the deeds. Uh, we need to work. We need to keep doing the right things. Even when our heart is not in it, sometimes we just have to do the right thing. So let me pull this together by saying this. Um, as we were planning this series, Letters to God, Letters from God, excuse me. As we were planning this series, uh, Letters from God, uh, we wanted, obviously, to make a lot of the seven letters that we get from Jesus. But we also wanted to make something out of the whole idea of letters, not emails, not texts, not, you know, social media, but handwritten (laughs) letters because they're rare and there's a sense in which they have perhaps a little bit more cachet, a little bit more power, a little bit, perhaps a little bit more lasting uh, influence to sort of smuggle some truth under the radar. And so um, one of the things that we're going to ask you to do in this series is to write letters. Letters. And to, today, I'm going to ask you to write a letter to God, a, a love letter to God. And uh, you're in one of two camps on this, this point. It could be that you say, Mike, you know what? Uh, the church in Ephesus is not really characteristic of me. There are seven churches. They all have different qualities. They're doing some things right, some things wrong. They're all different. And so to the extent that you are captured by a letter to a church or your family or your small group, to the extent that you're identifying with the letter, it may not be the letter to the Ephesians. You might, you might not say, this isn't me. Maybe you're saying, I'm not working that hard or I'm not persevering, right? I mean, I, I'm not doctrinally, pure, whatever. Uh, or you might say, I'm doing all those things and I actually have a burning passion for God. So this letter doesn't really relate to you. Okay, well, look, if you've got a burning passion for God, then write the love letter to God. That ought to be easy to do. Write a love letter to God. If the letter to the church in Ephesus does sort of capture you, then writing a love letter to God may be a hard thing to do. All the more reason for you to work on that. How are you going to rekindle your passion for God? It's it's great that you're doing the right things, but we want to do the right things for the right reason. Otherwise, it gets really hard to keep doing the right things. So, there's more in this letter to the church in Ephesus. As I say they, they, there's some comments about the Nicolosians who we don't actually know who they are or anything about, and they never show up again. Uh, but, but there's some comments there. And then there's this promise that if we do the right thing, God will reward us. So, I want to encourage you uh, to to take the advice that Jesus is giving to the church in Ephesus to heart. And one of the ways that you can take it to heart is to write a love letter to God this week. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we are not um, left alone. We thank you that you are all-knowing and loving, and that you have interceded, and that you have given us feedback. I pray that, uh, Spirit of God, you will guide us, help us understand from these seven letters which counsel and advice is most uh, prescient for us. Help us to see that, help us to lean into that, help us to uh, yield to your counsel. May we embrace your feedback and do it so that we can become more like Christ. And um, Father, may our, may our passion for you be rekindled this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.